Hello. Good evening. Today I'm going to read a short story by Kevin Barry, whose name could also be Barry Kevin, but it's not. It's Kevin Barry. Um, it's a short story from his critically acclaimed collection of short stories called There Are Little Kingdoms, which has won the Impact Award, the Goldsmith's Prize, and the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award. So it's a good one. We're going to read the first story. It's called Atlantic City. Um, I hope you enjoy. Uh, a July evening after a tar melter of a day and Broad Street was quiet and muffled with summer. The entire town was dozy with summer and even as the summer peaked, so it began to fade. Dogs didn't know what had hit them. They walked around the place with their tongues hanging out and their eyes rolling and they lapped forlornly at the drains. The old were anxious too. They twitched the curtains to look to the hills and flapped themselves with copies of the RTE guide to make a parlour breeze. Later, after dark, the bars would be giddy with lager drinkers, but it was early yet, and Broad Street was bare and peaceful in the blue evening. The youth of Broad Street and its surrounds had convened in a breeze block arcade tacked onto Maloney's garage. This had been one of Maloney's sharper moves. He'd taken an old shed that he'd used for a storeroom. It was maybe 40 foot long and half as wide, and he'd installed there a pool table, three video games, a wall-mounted jukebox, and a pinball machine. To add a note of local pride, he'd painted the walls in the county colours. It wasn't much of an arcade, with just the clack and nervous roll of the pool balls and the insipid bleats of Donkey Kong and Defender. There was high, anxious talk about girls and hand jobs, and who had cigarettes, and there was talk about cars and motorbikes. It wasn't much at all, but it was the only show in town, and this evening a dozen habituees had gathered there, all boys from prepubescence through to late teens, and there was desperation to make this a different kind of night, a night to sustain them through the long winter. But so far it was the same old routine, with Donkey Kong and Defender, and winner stays on the pool table. And James was always the winner, and he always stayed on. The pinball machine lit up and cracked to salute a good score. Its theme was the criminal scene of Atlantic City, and the illustration showed a black detective with a heavy moustache patrolling in a red sports car and wearing and whatever the day's high score whenever it was achieved, the detective's eyes lit up and he spoke out in a deep voice, downtown drawl. He said, Atlantic City, feel the force. This was James's cue to leave the pool table and approach the pinball machine. At 19, he was the oldest of the habituees and certainly the biggest. Not fat so much as massive, with the width of a small van across the shoulders and he moved noiselessly as though on casters and the flesh swung and rolled with him. There was no little grace to it, and he considered the breathless, blushing youngster who'd achieved a new high score on Atlantic City, and he considered the score, and he said, Handy, handy, all right. With a long-suffering sigh, he reached deep into the pocket of his jeans and took out the necessary coin and inserted it in the slot. The silver balls slapped free and he pulled the spring release to send the first of them on its way. 
and it bounced and pinged and rebounded around the nooks and contours of the game, around the boardwalks and the neon boulevards, and wordlessly the habitués of the arcade swiveled their attention from the pool to the pinball, for the magic had shifted to a new discipline, and cigarette smoke hung blue in the air and it twisted as they turned. It was a matter of pride to James that he wouldn't let even one of the silver balls drop between the flippers to the dead ball zone, and he worked the flippers with quick rhythmic slaps from his fingers and palms, an expert, and, he, the, and his score rolled onwards and upwards. The habitués were hypnotised by the ratcheting numbers, and James knew precisely when he'd made the day's high score, and he'd rolled it deep, in time with the black detective. Atlantic City, feel the force. Then, with the silver ball still pinging and rebounding, and the score climbing higher, his routine was to become Stevie Wonder. He closed his eyes and clamped on a delirious smile and rocked his head wildly from side to side, and he sang, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday. And the arcade rumbled with the usual low laughter, and as James sang the Blind Star's signature tune and rocked his head on his huge shoulders, beaming blindly to the ceiling, he let the flippers miss the first of the silver balls, and he released the second and let that drop too, and then the third, and all the while he maintained the delirium of a blind ecstatic. Then he returned to the pool table, took up his cue and said, Right, so, where am I? You're on the red, James. <clears throat> on the reds. Beyond the open door of the arcade, Broad Street reveled in the unexpected languor of evening heat. Broad Street didn't know itself. The evening was moving to its close, quicker now as the summer aged, but there was heat in it still. There was scant traffic. The hills above the town darkened with the shadows of approaching night. Maloney sat in his kiosk on the forecourt of the garage, by the pumps, and he cursed the championship's reports in the weekly paper. The lying bastards hadn't seen the same match he'd seen. They were making excuses for the county side. He hadn't seen a county side as weak in years. <laughs> there were fellas with weight on them. It was a disgrace. There were fellas on the county side who'd spent the winter drinking. Where, Maloney asked, the walls of his kiosk. Oh, where was the dedication? <laughs> there were no answers, and certainly none outside on Broad Street. James chalked his cue. He performed this action with priestly nuance, a sense of ritual. He allowed a particular amount of chalk onto the tip's head, blew off the excess dust, and then, with an air of dainty finesse, surprising in a man the width of a van, he chalked the sides of the tip too. A small, fat pig tongue, pink, not pig, pink tongue, <laughs> emerged from between his lips as he performed the task. It was a sign of concentration, for it was a knacky business to get it right. He wanted no moisture whatsoever in the vicinity of the cue's tip. Not on a night so clammy as this, when the arcade was foggy with the sweat and vapours of teenagers in summer. So listen, Carmody, he said. Are you looking at me with a straight face on you and telling me she's not riding? All I'm saying is... I don't think our friend has been next nor near. Our friend hasn't been within a million miles. James closed his eyes briefly and nodded his head slowly. This was sombre acknowledgement of information received. His manner as he leaned in over the pool table was proper and studious. The great mass of his belly he arranged carefully, and he peeked underneath his chin to ensure that he was not interfering with play and thus causing a foul. <laughs> 
If it was, he'd be the first to call it, and he formed a careful bridge for the cue between thumb and forefinger of the left hand, and he seized up a long red for the bottom left corner. Oh, he sized up a long red for the bottom left corner. I'm not saying for a minute she'd be an old slut, he said. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is she'd be gamey. All I'm saying is if you could get her going at all, then she'd really go for you. Do you know what I mean, come? She'd be like... His gaze lifted out to Broad Street as he sought the precise image. She'd be like a little motorbike. The low murmur of laughter rippled around the table and its edges. Another kid was having a go at Atlantic City, and there was an amount of interest in Defender, somewhat less in Donkey Kong. But there was no contesting the focus of attention. Outside, a little past nine, the evening had gone into torn. Was in its dream time, with the sky velvet, with the air still warm, with the shadows taking on the precise tone of the day's glow. As he prepared to let the cue slide, James tapped the faded bays three times with the middle finger of his bridge hand, a sportsman's tick, and with his right arm working from the elbow as a smooth piston, he made the shot. He sent the white ball down the table onto the red, and its kiss sent the red slowly for the bottom left, and the left-hand side he had, he had applied to the cue ball an indescribable delicacy caused it to drag and spin back towards the centre of the table where it would be ideally in place for the next red he had in mind. The object red still rolled, slowly, and then it dropped into the bottom left pocket and the cue ball's positioning was perfect and his opponent, Carmody, tapped the butt of his cue three times on the concrete floor in stony-faced regard and the usual hymn, the usual evening song, was sung. Shot, James. Shot. Shot, boy. The hymn was ignored, was disdained. He leaned uh, for a tap-in red to the middle right. It's ease a result of his positional play, and he made it without fuss. A lesser player would be inclined to ram in the easy pots with showy force and venom, but always James played the game quietly. He would roll his reds gently home rather than slam them. He would apply no more force than was needed, and for this reason... It was exquisite to watch him play, and the arcade was hushed in the presence of his talent. Just then, the air changed. A small troop of girls arrived in, a battalion of three. They had vinegar in them, and they roved their dangerous eyes around the habitues, and they were a carnival of cheap perfume on young skin, and whatever summer was, they trapped its essence and fizzed with it. The habitués developed deeper slouches and their heads went shyly down and they moved back into the shadows if they could but their eyes were uncontrollable and darted up insanely for an eyeful of sun-tanned girl and they couldn't but wince from the delirious pain of it. All the boys became awkward like this and thick-tongued, all except James. He laid the cue across the table, rubbed his meaty hands together, straightened his shoulders, closed his eyes, shook his head in wonderment and he said, Ladies! I'll say one thing now for nothing. I've seen you looking well in your time, but never as well as you're looking tonight. It was the girl's turn to be shy. His hungry gaze asked severe questions of their confidence, and inside they seethed at being reduced to these giggles, this nudging. 
They went and stalked out the ground around the wall-mounted jukebox. It was their acknowledged terrain, and they hummed and hawed over the selections, and James strode across the floor, searched for another coin in the pocket of his big jeans as he moved, and with a polite gesture of the hand, moved the girls back a little from the jukebox, and put the coin in the slot and selected the song that was currently at the top of the charts. He took the cue from the table to use as a microphone, and he launched powerfully into a song, uh, Baby Jane, by Rod Stewart, and it was struck up on the tiny speakers. He planted his feet wide on the floor, rock star fashion, and he had all the required shimmies of hip and flicks of hair, and laughter took hold of the arcade again, and everybody was relaxed and easy again. A farm truck pulled up on the forecourt outside and dispensed a farmer, and Maloney shrugged out of his kiosk and nodded curtly and received an a curt nod in repayment, uh, and Maloney crossed his arms and leaned back against the pumps. That was some messin' below in Clancy Park on Sunday, said Maloney. Shocking, said the farmer. There's fellas there that should be shot, said Maloney. Don't be talking to me, agreed the farmer. <laughs> you could put stones in jerseys and you'd get more out of them. You nearly could. But listen to me, did you have any joy with them creatures above? The farmer looked at the velvet sky and he considered the vagaries of life, chance and sheep management. There's no getting them down off that blasted hill, he said. I'm going to have to come up with a new tactic. And Broad Street was on fire. The last of the evening gave out in a show of dying golds and reds. The street lamps came on. The blue flicker of television screens could be seen behind terrace windows. The summer night announced itself with its own starlit energies. It brought temptation, yearning and ache because these are the summer things. James slotted a straight red into the top left pocket and he applied top spin to the cue ball so that it rolled onto the top cushion and allowed, and allowed him to line up the last of the reds. This would be tricky, because great precision was required when the cushions came into play and he lit a cigarette to consider it. Carmody was his opponent again and he was all but beaten anyway. Carmody was beaten in the mind even before they began to play. But all the same, James liked to win stylishly and well. He liked to make little gasps escape the habitues when he achieved the unlikely shots. He paused now to draw attention to the table before he attempted the difficult red. You're putting it up to me tonight, calm, he said. I don't know what's after getting into you, but you've moved on to a new level of expertise altogether. Are you practising on the sly? The habitues quietened and moved in closer because they could sense a put-down in the making. James had gone into the familiar pose, with his head held at a slight incline, and he regarded Carmody down his nose, and there was a thin set to the mouth, and he expelled air from his nostrils with a powerful snort, and he said, You're practising on the sly in the barn, aren't you? You're like... He put the cue down and danced a two-step. You're like an old farmer, hitting off to the matchmaker festival. He's had his first bath of the year. He has, his, he has the hair slicked back with strong tea. He's dragged a comb through his teeth. The jitters and giggles are uh, built nervously as the habitués waited to see where James would take it. And he set the hens on automatic. He's worried about the dancing, of course he is. The man has titanium hips, so he's, you know, clearing back the floor of the barn of an evening when the working day is done. And he's trying out a step. And he did a high kick step in the air and the laughter rumbled and built. And he's saying what I need for myself now is a nice, good little nurse. Do you know the way? 
a nice little nurse from an ear, throat and nose ward. He's always maintained a bit of gra for nurses because they'd be kind to you, wouldn't they, of a cold winter's night with the big thighs wrapped around your throat. The girls gasped and tisked. The habitués shook their heads, embarrassed with mirth. They never knew where to look when when James uh, roamed abroad on a course. It's the way I see it, calm. You're practising on the sly in the barn like the old farmer, by the light of the lonesome moon. As he crooned the word cowboy style, he leaned in to attend to his shot. Full attention had now been secured for the pool table. He made his bridge, tapped the bays three times with his middle finger, rolled the long, rolled the white along the cushion. It kissed the red and gave it momentum to move at a slow, even pace. And the red yawned for a moment on the lip of the pocket, as though it, as though he hadn't given it enough. But of course, he had, and it dropped. Shot, James. Shot, boy. You're a fucking lunatic, James, said Carmody, and he tapped the butt of his cue three times on the concrete floor. Sure, I know that. Maloney put the petrol takings into a tin box, turned off the transistor, and locked up the kiosk. He crossed the forecourt, carrying the tiny box reverently, and he cursed at the weather. Ten o'clock at night, and you were walking around the place in soup. He put his head around the door of the arcade. Even hour till I close up. Not a bother, said James. And keep it down a bit, for Jesus' Jesus's sake. <laughs> Absolutely, said James. An hour, said Maloney. Do you hear me? James laid the cue on the table. Goose stepped across the floor, threw his right arm into salute, and cried, Mein Commandant! You watch yourself. <laughs> Maloney tried and failed to keep the smile from his face, and he left them to it. This was the signal that the night was truly rolling, and for the most dangerous talk to begin. The younger of the habitués, earlier indulged, would now be pushed to the peripheries. The older ones would draw up schemes of devilment for the small hours. The girls became nervous. Atlantic City, feel the force! Ah, for the love and honour of God, said James, who had been lining up the black to continue his evening-long winning streak. He crossed the floor to the pinball, considered the new high score, patted his young usurper on the head and said, Naki, Naki, all right. As a matter of fact... You've put it beyond my reach. Let it be known from this moment forward, the young fella, here is the king of the pinball. Give the boy a banana. Walking back to the pool table, James suddenly stopped, gasped and collapsed to his knees. He clutched at his chest. His face was frozen in a terrible grin, and it became a grimace, and he gasped out the last words. I leave everything to James. The arcade throbbed with laughter. This was one of the most famed routines. It was James's impression of the heart attack that had killed his father on the kitchen floor. Though the girls had become shyer, shyness can fold in on itself and be transformed on a summer night. When there is possibility in the air, shyness can say, what the hell, and trade itself for brazenness. They fed coins to the jukebox and summoned a couple of slow numbers. James saw to the black and allowed his next opponent to step forward and rack for a new game. And he moved his great rolling flesh to the jukebox and and he said, Ladies, you'll have me red in the face now for the one of it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Is there no such thing as a bit of mercy? You know full well what I'm talking about uh, when I hear that one. I hear Bonnie Tyler and I go to pieces. The younger of the habitués began to drift off in ones and twos, and those who were 
and those who left early would be furious the next morning when they learned that they'd missed the great drama of the night. A little before eleven, the squad car rolled into the forecourt of Maloney's and Garda Ryan got out, with a face on him like turned milk. He stood on the forecourt and regarded the arcade and everybody crowded to the door and he addressed them. There was a windscreen of a car put, put in below in the square last night, he said. Is that news for you? James moved to the front of the habitues, crossed his arms soberly and stroked his chin with his forefinger. At what time precisely, Garda Ryan, he said, was the mechanically propelled vehicle interfered with? Watch yourself. Have you no, have you, have you no note made of it, Guard? I won't warn you again, believe me. I don't care who your family is. There was a windscreen put in. That's a hundred pounds damage. There's been other incidents. There's been nothing but trouble since this place was let open late. I'm marking ye cards for you now. All of ye. I've eyes in my head and they are wide open. I'm not going to let this message, oh, this messing go on a night longer. Not a single night, do you hear? I'm watching ye. Garda Ryan, in his shirt sleeves, stepped back into the squad car and with a flinty gaze, he looked over the small group from the ro- uh, from his roll-down window, and the more nervous of the habitués stepped back into the gloom. But it could not be left at this, and it wouldn't be, and one of them stepped out onto the forecourt, and everybody held their breath because it was James. He planted his feet wide, gunslinger style, and mimicked a pair of pistols with his fingers and thumbs, and he drew and aimed at the guard, and he said, "'Atlantic City, feel the force!' There were still tears and peals of laughter when Maloney came back to lock up and Maloney had a few drinks on him and he was convinced that he himself was the cause of the merriment and he became narky. Feck off home out of it, he cried. I'm seriously thinking of closing this place altogether. I'm seriously thinking of calling a halt to the whole (laughs) bastarding operation. And they set off about the town. The last of the younger ones straggled home with regret because July nights like this don't come around too often. The older ones caused what trouble they could, even though in a small town it was hard to work out constant variations of trouble, but they tried anyway. The summer night was warm and sweet about them, and repeated assaults were made upon the reputations of girls. The summer would move on and fade. There is always the terrible momentum of the years turning. Exam results would come. The older of the habitués would begin to make their moves. For one that would move to the city, another would stay in town. Some would take up the older trades. Others would try out new paths. And one, on a low September evening, would swim out too far and drown. And it would be James. Laments and regrets were no use. These were just the quotas and insistences of Broad Street. So that's it. That's the story. Maybe we can read another one tomorrow night. But um, I hope you liked it. It's a little bit melancholy and a little bit forlorn. Um, It's a little bit out of step too with the season that we're in. Summer's already over here. Um, But hopefully if you have trouble sleeping um, or if you wake up early and you have nothing to do, and you'd like to hear a story, now you've got one. Um, You've got one that you can play many times over and over.
Um, but here's to hoping that you have no trouble sleeping and have sweet dreams.